Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 4th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Quickly, I should say we are closing our March issue uh, today, and so I guess it will be online Monday, or much of it will be online Monday. Uh, we have a beautiful tribute essay to the late Terry Teachout by Bruce Bauer. We have a remarkably funny and wise um, commencement address <laughs> you will never actually hear delivered <clears throat> by the uh, by the uh, wonderful and witty Joseph Epstein, um, and a piece called "The Unbearable Bleakness of Schooling: How How uh, Educators Make a a Fetish of Doom and Gloom." by Robert Pondicio, among many other things, including Christine Rosen's piece on the anti-wedding wedding section, how the New York Times is revising its age-old society pages to reflect current uh, efforts to destroy uh, traditional relationships and, uh, and, and privilege uh, unconventional uh, sexual congress and other forms of, other forms of uh, post-marital bliss uh, above the simple nuclear family uh, constitution. Uh, a lot of other good stuff. That's uh, the March issue of Commentary. You will be able to read it online, as I say, maybe Monday. Um, as we were preparing to do the show, the job numbers came out. Boy, this is interesting because all week, no, all week the White House was uh, you know, basically like battening down the hatches and telling everybody to prepare for impact because, you know, like on Star Trek, when they're like, prepare for impact, and then one second later, you know, the set shakes and they're all holding on to the con the plastic consoles that are supposed to be the the digital readouts of our of our uh 23rd century future. Um, brace for impact, and then guess what? Uh the job numbers are staggering. Uh, well, first of all, we know that John, Joe Biden would never say brace for impact because he definitely didn't say that on his phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine. So <laughs> no, let's just he certainly get that out that's of the right. way. That's, that's okay, not something fair the president ever says. Yeah. So I'm very glad that we introduced this <clears throat> two days ago because the White House has been retailing this notion that the jobs numbers are going to come in bad, negative. Um, and it's all because of Omicron, totally temporary, transient. It has only everything to do with just, uh, you know, people being out of work because they were sick, temporary layoffs, but, or, you know, or furloughs. It has nothing to do with it. it's the economy strong, job market strong, just pre-spinning this thing. And then we got this payroll company uh, Wednesday put some meat on that claim saying they saw uh, numbers that would look negative to the tune of roughly 200,000 jobs. Again, all temporary, nothing to really worry about, but you know, psychologically prepare yourself for bad news. Well, the bad news didn't come. Not only did it not come, we got really, really good news. The jobs report came in, beat expectations. Expectations were for plus 200,000 jobs, which the White House was saying we wouldn't meet. It came in at close to half a million jobs. Not only that, they upwardly revised the month prior to the tune of about, I don't know, 300,000 jobs for roughly 700,000 job gains over the course of six to eight weeks. Over the course of Omicron. Over the course of Omicron. Right, so which the, began effectively December 1st. Yeah, roughly, right after Thanksgiving. Uh, and really hit hard in January. So Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia President Patrick Harker told Bloomberg, 
quote, we're probably going to have bad jobs report at the end of the week. I mean, it's just because of Omicron. So the corollary to that logically would be if we didn't have a bad jobs report because of Omicron, then Omicron's not a factor. Are we allowed to say something like that out loud? Are there consequences for saying something like that out loud? It's even better or more or 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 more stunning to note a couple of other facts aside from the uh, 467,000 jobs created. Um, the labor force in January, and again, these numbers are subject to revision as we as as we can see, right? Because the prior numbers, and this is, I think, been subject true to throughout revision. I'm sorry, to subject to revision, but we can make educated guesses about what those revisions are, particularly right. when they're preceded by a lot of upward revisions. We're right. not expecting these things to create our next month. Right. So there was the the labor force, one and a half million people entered the labor force in January. Now, this is an astonishing number for any January. January is traditionally not a time where there are entries into the labor force because people are coming back from vacation. There are snowstorms. You know, it can be hard for people to do to interview for jobs, all of that. Seasonal labor is you know dispatched with which right. apparently didn't happen in January because right. of the labor crunch. Right. So um, basically everybody is getting back to work and there are plenty of jobs for them. And the question that this raises, aside from all the good news that it represents, is when is this going to be enough now? The American people are speaking with their feet, with their cars with their pocketbooks in every possible way and saying we are done with covid we are done with covid now granted these can be regional differences and all of that the white house bracing for impact for bad news because it is hypnotized by its own um sort of uh, uh i don't even know what you would call it kind of fundamentalist pessimism about the severity of uh, the COVID variants or COVID itself and cannot get out of its own headspace. This is where Christine has, Christine has yes. a lot to say on this because, yes. and she has a great data point that demonstrates that not only are they hypnotized, but they're perfectly captured by this Warren voter element, which is imposing its own hypochondriacal neurosis on everyone else, just assuming yes. that everyone thinks like they do all this data and evidence and speaking with their mouths, by the way, to pollsters, all this evidence notwithstanding. Yeah, they, they Politico did an interesting piece yesterday about this, this supposed effort to do a big reset again. You know, the Biden administration is constantly having to reset, which is just a nice and more diplomatic way of saying it keeps screwing up and needs to fix the problems it made. So on COVID messaging, a, a topic that is very dear to our hearts because we've been harping on it for two years now. They, re they seem to realize that what they've been doing is, is starting to fall on deaf ears and people are ready to move on, but they, they really do need a signal from the, the guy who's running the country that it's okay to do that. They are not prepared to do that. They, they talked in this piece about how, well, you know, we really, I don't think we can give up mask mandates because we just, what if there's another variant? What if it's worse than Omicron? It really is the most, you know, the sky is falling sort of attitude about COVID. Meanwhile, 
there's a lot you'll see, you know, among uh, high school students in California, there's this movement to do peaceful non-compliance of wearing mask mandates. And there's, there's some very plucky teenagers who've put TikTok video up, the videos up over the early part of this week that said, well, I'm, I'm following Governor Newsom, Gavin Newsom's example. I'm just choosing not to wear a mask in school because I don't need one. You know, most of these kids are vaccinated. So there is a real movement afoot. There are lawsuits now, certainly about mask mandates. But in some ways, those mask mandate lawsuits are stand-ins for this little, this last power grab that a lot of blue state officials in particular have had where they don't want to give up those emergency powers. They want the permanent emergency. They're trying to insist on permanent emergency. And they have the backing of the Biden administration kind of on, on not out not outright, but by not saying it's over, we're moving on. I mean, what an opportunity. He could get up there today. He's going to talk about the jobs numbers today. And he could say, you know what? This is a sign. We're moving on. The country, you know, let's get rid of it. Let's shed the rest of these mandates. Let's keep our eyes open in case a new variant comes. But we know how to do this now. We are on the mend. He won't do it. But There's you know, too many constituents who say no. It is really all about the prospect of new variants because the administration got burned already twice, right? Uh, there was this sort of declaration of freedom from COVID over the summer. Um, and then there was Delta, which came out of uh, from a direction that no one expected. And then there was Omicron, which also came from a direction no one expected, but was, but was mild. So <clears throat> I think the thing is, and I've touched on this before, the threat of potential new variants never goes away. I mean, that so so what they need to wrap their head around is that even if this scary scenario comes to fruition, Americans are still done with COVID. Well, and they can rest message that the way we message annual flu virus, right? Because every year they encourage you're encouraged to get a shot. You're told, you know, the shot hopefully will cover the variant that's out there circulating. We deal with variants of viruses all the time. We know how to do this. We know there's we might not get it perfectly right. But to emphasize how much vaccination protects and to say, you know what, look, this is now the seasonal endemic thing. We're going to be dealing with this. This is what we know how to do. We also now have new, we're coming to market with all these new therapeutic drugs for people. If you do get sick, you can be treated. So again, like a true opportunity, but you're right, Abe, that the fear, I remember very vividly that public service announcement Biden did where he's like, get that, get rid of your mask. You know, that they didn't ever recover from the backlash to that messaging. Well, that's part of it. And then you also have the um, the constant raising of the stakes for the return to normality. So the raising of the stakes, which you can say I'm not being fair because I'm just I'm suggesting that they, they do this just to be you know hostile and, and ruin people's lives. But so fully vaxxed used to mean two shots. Uh, there is clearly going to be a rear guard action against all this stuff that we're talking about today on the grounds that we can no longer consider two shots fully vaccinated, the booster must be included in order for us to be consider people fully vaccinated. And in some places, you know, I don't know, the Metropolitan Opera in New York and various other places, the public theater in New York, they are now demanding that people show proof of boost as well as as vaccination. Um, we We forget these two salient facts about this, one of which is that the second shot was a boost. That is to say, according to all the data that were supplied by, by Pfizer and Moderna, the effectiveness of the vaccine was at somewhere between 75 and 85% from the first shot. The second shot boosted that to closer to 100% effectiveness. And now they're worried 
about waning effectiveness. And so you get the booster and the, the effect of the booster, uh, it appears is to, um, is to make even less effective uh, the Omicron variant on your body. But it doesn't interfere with transmission, at least in the Omicron cases we know. And so that's where they could go with this. In other words, I don't mean I'm not talking about Biden or the or the politics in the White House. I mean, the sort of the public health community is like, uh, we got it. We got to make sure everyone gets three. And then, you know, and then there's a fourth. There could be a fourth. The oh. Pfizer, by the way, the under five Pfizer recommendation, right, that uh, that uh, kids uh, get the you know, that they're ready to supply uh, the vaccine for kids under five. Uh, in mini doses, it's a sort of mini dose, is again a two-shot system. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, but um, it's one thing to deal with the skepticism of parents on the idea of necessarily having to do this when kids don't get COVID. Uh, it's another thing when the data here are much more ambiguous about the value of the value uh, or the the effectiveness of this with kids under five. That's why this like jobs report is so important. Yes. Um, the, the, just the, you know, it's in direct conflict with all your political instincts. Your instincts as a political animal would be to take this report and drag it up to the mountaintops and shout your own successes and, and demand that people acknowledge your successes. Seven million jobs in two months. That's fantastic. That's good news. If the White House is looking for a pivot, honestly, this is it. But they're not honestly looking for a pivot because they can't honestly bring themselves to say why it's good news. It just has to be good news in isolation without having any uh, corollary effects on the rest of society, on the, the COVID mitigation protocols that we've been living with. You would have to actually thread that needle in a logically coherent way. And the only logically coherent way is to say that Omicron isn't a threat to the economy. Therefore, Omicron isn't a threat, period. The, well, I, don't, I don't know I don't why I don't know why they can't. My point is, I don't know why they can't. That's what's interesting about this. OK, it is it is February. The political prevailing winds are against them, but they have these tiny they have these little points that suggest that they can mitigate the damage in November. Right. Serious job growth. Uh, uh, the uh, shameless gerrymandering redistricting stuff that's been going on that has, has, has basically ended up providing Democrats with a net gain of a couple of seats through, couple. through I think it's it could be close to seven. Okay, like so a net gain of seven in seats in California right. and it's a yeah. couple of safe seats in New York, like right, right. Upwards, so, like yeah, seven, so, right? so, so that could really mitigate the upside of the of the of a Republican wave in November. Um, the Senate races are interesting and peculiar. Uh, and in a lot of, you know, there are places where you can see that Democrats might be able to resist some kind of a tide unless there's a giant tide. They need to be preparing that narrative now. I mean, people aren't going to just understand it. They're going to feel, maybe they'll feel fine and they're getting jobs and they're going to get raises and all of that. And they're going to have to deal with inflation and all the things that are negative and crime and all that, but they can start preparing the storyline. And that's exactly what, that's they did what happened in 198. But right. that's what they did with this job report. They prepared, they, they prepped the beaches 
with a whole lot of negative news. Getting well, everybody ready for negative news, but with a soft side to it, a soft landing. That's how you do it. You retail on background and narrative. And then when the event happens, you activate everybody's narrative. They could do that. They know how to do it. They've been doing it, but they only do it negative. But they but and they also they also want credit for doing a reset on a lot of these things without actually changing their policies. And I think that's what's so frustrating about the constant chatter about, oh, yeah, we see we're going to we're going to get out of this. We're going to get out of this. It sounds optimistic, but they do absolutely nothing at the practical policy level to change things. And there's a weird quote in the Politico story that that, you know, on, about uh, what they're thinking, what the thinking administration is. And it says one of these you know administration officials says, we can really get to a much more active and less fearful, more normal style of living if cases keep declining, said one of the people familiar with the response. We have to reset people's expectation that they can get back to joy. First of all, what the hell does that mean? I mean, it's that, you know, I love Marianne Williamson, but that's a real injection of Marianne Williamson speak into, into the a Biden administration official's mouth. But this idea that like they're describing themselves, this fearfulness, this, this sort of anxiety, most Americans aren't there anymore, but they're still there. And it's a real, there's a kind of elite bubble effect and they're governing from that and they are not changing policy. Then they are caught surprised when, for example, there's like six or seven lawsuits in the state of Virginia after the governor who came in on a wave of criticism of blue state policies uh, about COVID says, you know what? No mask mandate. You can wear them if you want, but you can't, you've got to give people the option to choose this option to choose option to choose. This is what more and more people want and they are not giving an inch. Look, um, Noah's right that all they want to do is talk about bad news. That is, that is politically suicidal. Everybody knows that's not what you want to do when you're in politics. Uh, Politicians want to say that they did things for you. I mean, unless the world is changing and politicians now want to say that they're impotent and foolish and can't do anything for you, but you should vote for them anyway, which is a very peculiar way to spin things. And it's, you know, it's like Occam's razor in reverse. So what I'm saying is they got great job numbers. They got, you know, they got uh, there's a certain kind of break in the political headwinds that might be helping them. They can build some enthusiasm in their own base uh, they can walk around saying that, you know, what they promised to do was get us beyond COVID and economically we're now getting beyond COVID and some of the problems that have arisen there, you know, just as they've managed to help turn around the job market, they can turn around inflation and the supply chain stuff. That's one of the virtues, by the way, of having a good story to tell. The good story to tell is you can say, I did this or this is happening that's good maybe you can feel better about the possibility that the other things I'm going to do are going to make them better. Now, I, I, you know, the, the stuff that is still worrying you now, I, I, you, everybody knows listening to this podcast, I don't believe that they can do that or that they have any idea how to do that, but that they can say it, but they it's, can say it. It's not that they just can say it. They have all the evidence in the world to suggest that we've spent six weeks obsessing over a mirage on December 26th, the, the Atlantic, Omicron is pushing America into soft lockdown. January 6th, mounting Omicron infections force businesses to scramble, threatening economic recovery, the Washington Post. The 24th, Omicron's economic toll, missing workers and more uncertainty. Uh, uh, half a dozen others, CNN, Omicron is slamming into businesses. We've taken a nosedive, says one business owner. All this stuff was a narrative fueled by the, by the press that didn't come to fruition. It was horse crap. Here's the thing, though. We keep saying that they can do this, they can do this, they can do this, that they're not doing this. All true. But the fundamental problem for them is the guy at the top. 
he is incapable of relaying a positive message. He is, a t- aside from the fact that he's a bad sort of expositor at this point in his life in, in any number of ways, he's a terrible messenger. He gets up there and he's angry, he's scolding, he's defensive. And in order to turn a factually uninspiring record, which which the, the administration's record still remains, into a sort of not so uninspiring because look at these recent things, it takes some finesse. That he they, they, he is thoroughly incapable of that, and not just him. Let's talk about the let's. There's no the nimbleness. Let's talk about the PR disaster yesterday, right? Talk about having a good story to tell. What happened yesterday? U.S. Special Forces effectively took out the head of ISIS, right? What was part of the dominating story yesterday? Um, was uh, the administration's response? When people said, well, what's the real story here? Did he blow himself up? Did we kill him? Why are we saying he blew himself up? Where's the evidence? Something like that. And both Jen Psaki at the White House and Ned Price at, I think it's Ned Price at the State Department, accused reporters of asking, you know, where, what the, you know, what to lay out sort of the facts of this, of being Alex Jones or, you know, playing or being, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, peddling misinformation when they were just asking for facts. And all you have to say is, you know, uh, a terrible person, you know, threat to tens of thousands of people, a threat to American security um, is no longer a threat. And, you know, when when all of the facts are out and we have a, you know, well, uh, we will provide them to you. Instead, they go and attack the press for asking a relatively plain question and step on their own. I mean, that is to say that, you know, they stepped on their own story, stepped on their own story and reinforced reinforced incredulity about what happened. You're talking about two separate events, Jen Psaki and uh, Ned Price at the State Department, spokesperson of the State Department, both of whom were asked about a Jen Psaki was asked to provide evidence demonstrating that. The, the United States had nothing to do with the civilian deaths that resulted as a result of this raid that this ISIS guy blew himself up and a lot of his family and civilians with him. And that uh, Ned Price was asked to provide evidence sub- substantiating a very specific report published in a variety of outlets from a declassified American intelligence in, uh, indicating that Russia was in the final stages, actively preparing to create a propaganda video demonstrating that some provocation had taken place in the Donbass region in Ukraine justifying invasion. Um, These reporters asked for evidence of these two things, both of which are completely believable. Uh, This ISIS guy who blew himself up did so in precisely the exact same fashion as al-Baghdadi blew himself up in a raid. It's not like this doesn't happen. Russians manufacture provocations without evidence to support them. It happens. It has happened. It could happen again. It's not hard to believe these things. But then they react with, uh, you know, feigned indignance and very defensive over the request for just basic evidence, evidence to justify these claims, further indicating that, you know, to people who are skeptical that they have all the reason in the world to be skeptical. See, there the administration at this point, this pattern was established with Afghanistan because they had so much to hide. And they and they were hiding it all, right? Cobbles, nope, Cobbles not going to fall. The drone, we got the we got the ISIS team. Uh, we killed them with the drone strike. The who the ones who blew up the airport turned out to be a, a guy coming home to his family. No, nope, but we're looking into that. But everything, you know, um, 
So they are now sort of so used to protecting whatever may or may not be happening um, that they sort of that they're locked into that defensive mindset. Right. They're also, I, they're also just indignant in general when they're when the press actually does its job, which it didn't do throughout Biden's presidential campaign and really didn't do until Afghan post Afghanistan. That was when they really started getting asked tough questions in a normal way. We are supposed to have an adversarial press corps and they're just starting to get there. But that is another thing like the, the, there's almost the indignance, particularly when Saki expresses it is very much like, well, how dare you? Aren't we all friends? Don't we all? I mean, it's it's kind of annoying, but it's also a sign. Actually, it's a good sign for for consumers of media that we're actually going to start getting tough questions asked of this administration. These aren't particularly tough questions. They're just fact based at this point. But I mean, baby and, steps, and, they, baby and, and, you know, Ned, Ned Price could say, I mean, there are things I really, you know, these these were leaks and there are things I can't reveal to you because of sources and methods. Um, these stories and I, I you know, I, I don't I don't have chapter and verse for you. And I'm that's sorry. What, exactly what he said. Right. But, but then, then added, he said, you're well, like, you don't Alex believe Jones. me, you know, go to the go listen to the Kremlin. Take the Kremlin's word for it if that's comfort. He said it was comforting. Yeah. Or or, you know, um, the, I'm just saying these are not tough. Qu- tough questions are. So it's it's weird. And my, my point is, I just want to get back to this covid thing is like um, their their ability to even to promulgate a positive message or a positive story or a story that will help their case as would be the case with uh, Russian false flag misidentification videos and stuff like that, uh, they step on their own good news and they step on their own uh, effort to create a narrative that the American people will understand for why it is necessary for us to be taking the measures that we are taking toward Russia and Ukraine, you know, repositioning forces and, you know, sending people into Europe and all of that. All these uh, data points are about, you know, supporting, making the American people understand why this is necessary. But losing your temper with Matt Lee of the of the AP, who's been doing this for like 20 years, is peculiar at best. And and I think this is why um, it's kind of jaw dropping. I mean, Abe, you're right. Like Biden doesn't know how to how to be positive or how to be. But that's weird. It is weird not to be able to say we were very worried about Omicron, but you know what? The American people, they got iron in their spines. They got the future. You know, they got stars in their eyes about the future. They know how to make this country great. They're going out to work. They're creating jobs. They're filling those jobs. Their salaries are going up. I, you know, I tell you, it's easy to be president of a country where the people are just, you know, the people are just so entrepreneurial, so enthusiastic, so ready to get on with their lives. Again, that's I just made that up on the spot they, now. I'm not they, an elected politician. I ne- didn't know I was going to say that three seconds ago. He's the goddamn president of the United States. Say something good about the people who voted for you. They don't you animal. like they like, don't like the people and they don't even trust the ones who voted for them because they are a technocratic expert class of people who want they expect the people to conform and listen to what they tell them to do. They really they have a con, they, they might not they love the public, it as, but hate people. 
There we go. Yes. The and they are, there is classic a contempt. Conceit. This is why they want to censor Joe Rogan. It's why they want to say, I mean, it's, they have a fear and, and that's why they call it a fringe, even though like in the Joe Rogan case, he's got far more listeners than. By the way, that story than- is over and we're still talking about it. I've seen Rogan articles published in left-wing outlets today yeah. mm-hmm. as though this is a live issue. No, it was resolved. It's, it's we should, over and yeah. you're obsessing about it. Well, they're obsessing about it because, um, you know, uh, when they didn't get their way, when somebody's impotence is revealed, sometimes, um, you know, that's like one of those wounds that people can't. They just have to go over and over and over again. Like they thought maybe they could get Joe Rogan. I just want to do a little back padding before I get to the ad. I made a joke on Tuesday after Neil Young uh, pulled his music from Spotify because of Joe Rogan. I said, you know. The way and Joni Mitchell and I was like, you know, this is Laurel Canyon, 1972. I mean, the way this is going, maybe Crosby, Stills um, and and Nash are all going to pull their music, too. And then we could have a, uh, you know, like a like a trifecta. And guess what they did? They did. I was making a joke. I was making a joke about has been hippie, you know, boring, seven minute long not very well sung crapola. We are stardust. We are golden songs. And they did it. So now every 82 year old who wants to hear a Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song will not be able to get it on Spotify when they're drinking their Geritol. So congratulations to everybody. Sounds better on wax anyway. Ah, wax. But only 20 year olds have wax. Isn't that right? I don't think, yeah, I don't I think, think so. 45 okay. and, and turntables are the tool of the young. Okay, guys. So I got to talk to you about our friend Dan Senor's podcast, Call Me Back. It was the post-corona podcast. You can get it on, you know, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Such a great series of conversations. Last week, um, he had on uh, Obama official Evelyn Farkas and commentary contributing editor Brett Stevens to talk about what going on in with Russia and Ukraine. And this week, he has a blockbuster show uh, with uh, the Wall Street Journal's uh, Eric uh, Schwartzel. Uh, Schwartzel has written a book called Red Carpet, Hollywood, China and Cold War II. And uh, on the podcast, uh, the what what Schwartzel does in this blockbuster of a book is detail just how horribly uh, Hollywood in particular has decided to allow China to um, uh, uh, interfere with and um, uh, censor uh, American cultural products um, in order for those products to get access to the gigantic Chinese market and how this started 25 years ago with Martin Scorsese's movie Kundun uh, when uh, then chairman of Disney, Michael Eisner, found himself in a hot spot because Kundun is about the Dalai Lama and, uh, and they were already starting to think about what they could do in China. And they basically buried the movie and, and, and destroyed its own commercial prospects so that they could go to the Chinese and say, Hey, look, we, we did what we could to, to interfere with this. And, you know, 15 years later, they're building, um, they're building Disney Shanghai uh, until the late part of the, first decade of the 21st century, China was not a major market for American cultural products. And then it all exploded as the 
uh, economic growth of the middle class in China happened, you know, now China is the second largest market in the world for for motion picture entertainment. The largest single grossing movie in the world last year was a was a Chinese movie that made nine hundred million dollars or something like that. Um, and uh, so I I, I uh, this is a great podcast conversation with Eric Schwartzel about China and. Uh, I'm very excited for you to listen to it. Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast. Go to Google Play, Apple, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And um, that's it. Do that now. And you can listen to it, by the way, when you're sitting in your X chair. That's right, the X chair. How much have I, how, mu- how many conversations have we had about the X chair? So many, but you know, it's got that incredible, um, it's got that incredible d- uh, dynamic variable lumbar support that 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 gives uh, incredible support to your lower back. It's got that LMX technology that um, will cool you when you're hot and uh, heat you up when you're cold, and has four different massage settings. This is the luxury supercar of office chairs. That's the only way to put it. I got. I'm sitting in one right now. You'll want one to just give it a shot. You got a 30-day trial period if you get the X chair. 30 days, you can return it. You're not going to want to return it. That's just the simple fact of the matter. You are not going to want to return this chair because it is the chair that you've always wanted to sit in. Take my advice, risk-free for 30 days. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, C-O-M-M-E-N-A. Why am I even spelling it? xchaircommentary.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com. Okay, so uh, what do we care? What do we care? about whether Biden, so Biden has a chance to promote the wonders of the current economy and help himself politically. And we're, 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 our, our jaws are dropped at the inability he's going to do it, but fine. We don't like him. We don't like his policies. We don't like his progressive policies. The better he does politically, the more likely he is to get things through that we wouldn't like. So why do we care? I, I, I have a very simple reason I'm going to say why we care. Cause I want us to get out of this goddamn period. That's why. Can't, I, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want my kids in masks in schools anymore. I don't want to have to go on an airplane in a mask anymore. I don't want to uh, live and surrender to this public health, uh, you know, this um, this top-down public health bureaucracy that I no longer trust uh, to tell me um, to, to provide sensible advice and all of that. And uh, he's the only game in town. There's no way out of this except through... And there's no way out of this with liberal culture, which is, you know, it's part of where I live. And if you don't live where I live, then then fine. Maybe you're, you know, you're, you're living through it. But nobody is really over it. Nobody is really out of it. Anytime you go into an airplane, you know, anytime you go into an airport, you're, you're back in it no matter where you are. So he's got to get over this. He's the only one who can get us through this. He can tell Fauci to shut up. He can tell Rachel, he can tell Rochelle Walensky to shut up. He can tell Francis Collins to shut up. He can say you are harming American national security. You are harming American growth and you are harming the psychological, you are, you are damaging the psychological condition of America's youth 
we are not living like this anymore. If until he does that, I'm sorry to say this. I wish that it were enough that Yunkin and you know the rear guard retreats and DeSantis and wherever that this is that that, that is sufficient unto the day, but it really isn't. Well, every every time they try to do something in it, and there's both a short term and a long term problem with it as well, because in the short term, when they scrambled to respond because they've been caught flat footed like they were after Omicron with the the lack of tests available, for example, then it's like, look, go to USPS.gov and get your free test, get your free test. Look, we're reacting, we're reacting. They do that. Or they say, for example, we're going to spend all this money giving every American an N95 mask because that's so much safer. Every time they do that, that is a big green light to the overreaching public health bureaucrats, whether they're at the federal level at the CDC or whether they're like, you know, on the health committee of a school board that wants to keep children behind masks forever. So no one even gets a cold. That is the green light. And they keep giving these green lights. And then on the other hand, going, wow, it's just, you know, we'll get out of it eventually. Hang with us. Well, it's they can't keep giving these mixed signals to the people who have even a small amount of power in these local communities to enforce rules that we no longer need to have. But you're right insofar as we have all the evidence in the world to suggest that a critical mass of voters will vote themselves out of this, whether you like it or not. But that won't happen in New York City or Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles, really deep blue places. In fact, and if we saw a profound electoral backlash with completely unambiguous policy prescriptions attached to it, you'd see the exact opposite reaction occur in places that are still governed by dark blue states because it's so much more about culture than it is about public health. You know, I was just thinking more about Biden's inability to to say what needs to be said here. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that to the extent that he has a positive message to offer and I, or that he thinks he does and he thinks he does, it is that it is this I am tough and have grit thing. And you can you can believe that no one's going to mess with me. And he, you know, he, he gets the theatrical uh, Clint Eastwood whisper and, you know, sort of growls and hate that so much. <laughs> me, too. And I don't think anyone likes it. But that is his version of of my good message. And that is completely at odds with saying, yay. But it's perfectly free. I'm so glad you brought that up because the weird Clint Eastwood like whisper and toughness is then immediately followed by Dr. Jill holding him by the hand and helping him down the (laughs) stairs off in the same press conference. You're like, what is happening? It's again, mixed messaging, mixed optics. But, you know, there's 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 his own approach. And then there's just the approach of 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 his of his team. And I just think it's it's very, very interesting that they are that they are unable to grasp the damage that they're doing to themselves. It's just interesting. Like, I I think they don't know, or they're more, they're more worried. Point is if they went with this positive message, you think, you think that the base would turn on them. Where's the base going to go? I mean, this is one of these classic questions. Where's the base going to go? The base is going to go. He's going to say, look, if you're worried to keep on your mask, keep your mask on. That's good. Take the precautions you need to take. Uh, no one will harass you for doing it. Nobody will bother you for doing it. Uh, and if they do, will they'll be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Blah blah blah. Um, but you know, since the doctrine here is that um, is is a kind of collectivist doctrine, right? It's like there is no such thing as protecting yourself unless everybody is doing the same thing at the same time in lockstep. In terms of mitigation, there is no mitigation. 
but we don't need mitigation with Omicron. And there's also a very peculiar, how do you describe this? How do you say this? People who are dying from Omicron, if they are dying from Omicron, are dying because they're not vaccinated. Everybody who is a COVID hawk is vaccinated. Uh, they are not going to get Omicron from the unvaccinated. They'll get Omicron by getting it. Uh, and they won't be sick from it. Even if they're scared of it, they really won't get sick from it. Very sick. Anyway, <laughs> more worse than the flu. But they hate the unvaccinated. And they have contempt for the unvaccinated. So they're like, because of the unvaccinated, I have to wear a straight jacket. I'm now going to not only am I going to wear the straight jacket, but everybody else is going to wear a straight jacket. And it's all because of those people who are harming themselves, who aren't really a threat to me. There's no this. This is the losing of the thread we keep talking about. That doesn't make any sense. And I'm not making this up like this is the day. Yes. Do you have a one in uh, 250 chance or one in a thousand chance or one in 2000 chance of somehow getting long COVID through some process like this? Yeah, but you have a one in, I don't know, 10,000 chance of getting hit by lightning. It's the classic risk factor question. You are no more at risk from having a terrible consequence from COVID than, you know, under these circumstances than you are at risk from having a terrible consequence from something else. And we don't mitigate our lives in this way to protect from those other things either. Um, so what is it that they think they know that they're, that they're, you see what I'm saying? What is it that they think that they know, or do they just believe that everybody should wear a mask forever? I, I, I just, I don't know. But why, but why would Ron Klain think everybody should wear a mask forever? I don't know. I mean, you even have Liana Wen, who's just been a, a, a gloom and doomer. Even, you know, when when the CDC said you could take your masks off last spring, you know, she was out there making videos with her and her family, like ostentatiously refusing to go into that restaurant and making a big show of how she you know won't go outside and all of a sudden flipped on a dime and was like, oh, even in areas with high community transmission, we should be able to take off our masks, especially if there's, you know, high vaccination rates. And the only impetus for that pivot was the polling data, was the politics of it. And so she pretends to be so high minded, but she can read a poll and all of these people can read a poll. They have the permission structure out there to make this pivot if they wanted to, which is why it's so confounding why they won't. Okay, I love so, the uh, yeah, permission structure ahead. returns to the podcast. Oh, the it's the permission structure. <laughs> I, There's no better phrase for it. So I'm not it's letting true. it go, even though it's there, a verbal crutch. There is, though, there was a little hint in the, the lawsuit that the parents that ACLU Virginia filed uh, this this week against uh, Governor Youngkin in the state of Virginia about lifting mass mandates that I that really struck me, the, the wording of it. And it was basically saying universal masking may be necessary to protect, you know, a small group of children who have pre-existing conditions, basically. So of course, that what that was signaling was a shift from the understanding of how state-run institutions, uh, how much uh, of a responsibility they have to protect the most vulnerable, right? So in schools, most school districts have uh, been sued by the parents of disabled or special needs kids for not providing enough resources. Those lawsuits have over time helped uh, 
public schools in particular develop better, you know, uh, targeted programs for these kids. But there are always going to be a subset of children who are too at risk to attend regular school because of their health. And most school systems now have some sort of virtual uh, option for those kids who need it's deemed medically necessary. What that shift, sorry, this is a very long-winded way of saying the way that it was worded in the lawsuit is suggesting that now the majority are the ones who have to make accommodations for whatever minority is either fearful or or at risk uh, from a regular virus, a regular sort of virus that's in broad circulation for which we have vaccination, and that going forward, universal masking is the minimum for that. Like we have to at least do that in perpetuity, no endpoint, no off ramp, and that is really concerning. And that's actually the kind of thing that that you know the CDC they cite the CDC throughout this thing. They need to start talking clearly about why that's not the case. But I mean, that lawsuit is completely disingenuous. It is a political. Oh yeah, totally. It's, it's a pol- <laughs> it's it's an act of political warfare against the elected governor of Virginia fulfilling a campaign promise by a group, as you say in your blog post about this, by a group whose existence uh, is based on the idea that government should not be, to, to the extent possible, government should not be restricting the free behavior of and the free exercise of our civil liberties uh, as, as citizens. It is the American Civil Liberties Union, free speech, free assembly, free access, free exercise of religion that is what it is for and now they are they are they have now become a an anti-free speech group they support speech codes they support uh you know uh, separate sets of rules for you know for the supposedly underprivileged or you know uh, wars on the privileged and now they are actually suing to restrict the liberties of people to live the way that they choose to live in terms of 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 their con, you know, of how they ha- how they handle people, their own children, children, children. No, but how they handle their own children, right? And so, um, and so, th- this is an astonishing turn. I mean, we've been watching it happen for the, with the ACLU. This is the most naked example of it that they are actually suing to prevent the lifting of a civil liberty restriction that was imposed as a part of an emergency measure. The ACLU opposes emergency measures almost exclusively for the most part they opposed almost every emergency measure that was put in place after 9/11 in terms of terror stuff and they and and now they are supporting it and they're supporting it because they are a leftist democratic activist group that is now simply serving the interests of teachers unions and lunatics and all of that and every everybody who is writing a check for them to them on the grounds that they are, you know, tribunes of free speech or something like that should have their head examined because if they come, if they go like this, God knows what they're going to do next is all I can say. Watch for that issue, uh, March issue of commentary. Uh, Hang on. What? You can't close this podcast out without doing an update on CNN. Ah, okay. Let's do an update on CNN. Oh, wait, wait. First of all, gentlemen, I, I don't know if you realize this, but democracy is currently in <laughs> peril because Jeff Zucker had to step down and he was really one of those pillars of democracy. I think he's in the Bill of Rights. I, I'm not sure. This but is very deadly. sad. This is very sad to me. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry that we brought this you have up. To explain. We do have to right. make fun of it. 
<laughs> but that's Jamie Gangel said this, and she's a friend of mine. And I don't, I, I it's, I'm sad no, that the, she's, well, no, I'm the, the, sad that she said this because I don't want to make fun of her. And her no, husband Dan claimed, Silva writes great books. But they, no, no, no. This was a Gabrielle claim. This was a claim that that there was a claim. Members made of Congress. That, that members, of, members Congress, of Congress. Members of Congress. Vanity Fair has reported that members of Congress claimed. Right that Jeff Zucker having to be removed was, was the, was the end of democracy. So, so dude, I my Jeff girlfriend Zucker in Niagara the Falls, of- Ontario, Canada, who you never met. She's a model, but, but, but I thought Jeff Zucker was the end of democracy because he put Trump on in 2016. I can't keep up with who's the end of democracy, where, how wasn't he responsible for Trump becoming president? According to, there's a whole body of opinion that says Facebook and CNN were responsible for Trump becoming president. So, uh, you know, I, I'm 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 completely baffled. Well, we're by, dancing by around this, the, the revelation. Yes. The revelation was so <laughs> Jeff Zucker abruptly resigns um, amid the discovery process in a lawsuit brought by former anchor Chris Cuomo, oddly saying that he had an undisclosed affair with a person that he had elevated within the organization um, and it hadn't been disclosed and it was unprofessional. And so he was resigning immediately, which was weird because this was apparently an open secret, an open secret so open that it was reported in places like Deadline Hollywood. It was in Katie Couric's book. Um, the notion that this was not a known fact around the newsroom strikes us as uh, hard to believe. So a not a known later, fact around the newsroom. I literally know 20 people. I, I would say 20 people I've been in touch with in the last four days who were like, Jeff and Allison, like it, it was, it was, it was, it was going on in the late nineties. I mean, I, did, I, I haven't, you know, kept tabs on Jeff. I'm Zucker's just telling you, so I know a lot of people worked in, However, around there, and it's, it's like, it's, it's the idea that he would say this, this relationship changed during COVID, and I was really remiss in reporting it. Maybe there was COVID in 1998 we haven't heard about because apparently that's around the time that this relationship started and it's been going on for decades. Well, it took us all of two minutes to do some Googling and find out that this wasn't exactly an unknown factor. So we were all like, well, this is weird. There's probably more to this story. And everybody else had pretty much the same conclusion. And it turns out there was the New York Post and Rolling Stone reported yesterday almost simultaneously that the allegation now is that both. Zucker and his paramour were um, actively advising Andrew Cuomo, former New York governor Andrew Cuomo, about how to navigate the pandemic, how to handle interviews, how to respond to the president's criticism, how to be an effective uh, politician, political figure in this moment of crisis, um, which is many things, among them an abdication of journalistic ethics. Uh, And that's probably not all we're going to find out about how this guy behaved in his tenure. And yes, there's plenty. Of, and the, the flash take now is that Jeff Zucker's legacy is, is tainted because of what he did to elevate Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016. Of course it is. But his legacy will now be defined by what he did to help Andrew Cuomo in response it's, to this creation that he made of, of Donald Trump. It's the far bigger story. It's the only story. I mean, it's 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 it would be an outrage if Cuomo himself we're not disgraced. Um, the fact that he is the fact that 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 Zucker and 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 she were part of his PR team while he was pulling a fast one on 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 the people of New York is just extraordinary. Which that was anyone not would mourn this. It, right. It okay. was not unknown. We talked about it at the time, even in like April and May of 2020. It was 
pretty plain, according, you know, given what we knew about how the legislature, how the assembly was behaving vis-a-vis the administration, that something funny was going on with the numbers. They knew. Everybody in media knew. Okay, I'm now going to be I'm now going to be the nihilistic cynic uh, newsroom uh, veteran uh, in at the picnic. Uh, is it a shocking breach of journalistic ethics? Yes, but there are no journalistic ethics. Leaders of news organizations are consulted by politicians all the goddamn time, and they have been for decades and decades. When you own a newspaper, you own a television station, you own a network, you run a network or something like that. These guys try to uh, create relationships with each other. They they have private negotiations over all kinds of things like access to 5G or where they're going to put their printing press or what kind of tax break they're going to get in their area to get a printing press or whatever. And uh, politicians and people who run newsrooms are not strangers and the, and the iron wall between them doesn't exist. Everybody was so shocked when Roger Ailes was giving advice to various people on how to behave in the Republican Party because that would never happen. And, you know, Ben Bradley and the people at the Washington Post were hiding facts about about uh, about John F. Kennedy's uh, dalliances during his presidency and all kinds of things. People hid stuff about Clinton. People are were in relationships, uh, you know, uh, very incestuous relationships between people in media and their spouses and and getting jobs um, in administrations. And why is that? What do you think? Why? Why is why is it so attractive to have, you know, the wife of a major editor working at a at an agency of the federal government? Because it's an access point, a quiet, but behind, you know, backdoor access point at some times. And Jeff Zucker was doing nothing different from what everybody does, from what the heads of CBS News and ABC News and NBC News and the New York Times and the Washington Post and the AP have done from time immemorial. One of the reasons why people buy newspapers and one of the reasons why people run networks or buy networks or want networks, it's to peddle influence and they can get their influence as close as possible one on one with voices uh, you know, in the ear of the Oval Office or 10 Downing Street or wherever. And people should stop this kind of like, oh, my God, Jeff Zucker was on the phone with Andrew Cuomo. Jeff Zucker was on the phone with Andrew Cuomo five times a week. Who knows why? Who the hell knows why? I because disagree. that's what they do. OK, um, I don't think what I mean, look, I defer to you okay. <clears throat> No, in terms of history here, but um I don't believe that these outlets were pure messaging platforms the way they are now. And <clears throat> I think in, in, in that is the service that Zucker provided for Cuomo. And it is, it is what I think a lot of Americans have begun to suspect more and more. Um, even as ratings fail, to some extent, it doesn't matter because the point is for for the network to be a messaging platform. Okay, fair enough. I'm not, let's let's yes. also assume that you're right, John. Let's assume that you're, yeah. you know, this is was another open secret and it's not even, you know, not not best practice, even though it flirts, you know, flirts with unethical behavior. Sure. So what you're alleging is there are more shoes to drop. Totally agree. 100% agree that we don't know the full story yet. No, let me just put it. I'm just saying a, you know, People shouldn't be shocked that there are these behind the scenes. Where, but where I agree with with Abe 
And I think it's actually the cautionary tale of this in the current environment and the current way that social media work and the way lawsuits work and all of that, um, that uh, when things started to go the way they were going for Andrew Cuomo, when he started becoming this lionized figure, uh, when the daily press conferences started and were you know promoted and trumpeted by CNN and others and all of that, that was hubris. He was flying too close to the sun, and it wasn't you know did it was less than a year before he was destroyed in part for raising himself so high while he was making bad and stupid policy decisions that were in fact you know literally injurious and and led to the deaths of thousands. Um, while he was being promoted in this way. And it was hubristic for Jeff Zucker and Alison Gollist and whoever else to participate in that process. There are consequences. There are consequences for this behavior now in a way that maybe there weren't before. And you, you, you might want in the atmosphere like this to establish an arm's length distance from you and the people in power to protect yourself from the consequences that are going to be visited upon you if things go south. Hold yourself separate. Isolate yourself from the consequences. Be prudent. What Jeff Zucker and Allison Gallus did was imprudent. What they did by having the Brother Act, the Andrew Chris Brother Act, was imprudent. It was foolish, as we know, because it took eight months for it all to come crashing down over Andrew's head, over Chris's head, and now over Zucker's head and over Allison Gallus's head. That is why you don't do it anymore. It used to be that you could close off that relationship, right? Now you can't close off the relationship and, and you better be careful. How about that for a, how about that as a, as a cautionary tale for, you know, the next head of CNN or whoever it is that Rashida Jones, who was running MSNBC or Suzanne Scott of Fox, by the way. Okay. So did we do it? Yeah. Interesting, by the way, that a lot of these places replace with a woman after one of these scandals, (laughs) just putting that up, (laughs) assuming, I guess, I mean, real equity will be achieved when one of these women has a terrible scandal, just like Zucker. (laughs) And nobody listened to Katie Couric. That's, you know, she wrote this dishy autobiography. I didn't read it and stuff like that, but like everything was, I mean, apparently she just, you know, she said, man, this is weird. Jeff said he was going to give me a job. He didn't give me a job. And then Allison Gallus, who is his incredibly close aide, it's weird stuff, moves into an apartment right above him. Ooh, it's like, oh, really? And so I guess nobody actually reads anything. That's 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 the secret here. Nobody reads anything, including Katie Kirk's book, which I now want to read because that was some good stuff. And maybe there's stuff in there about other people that I, you know, that I can dig up that I won't. Otherwise, I'll have to wait until their lives are destroyed and then hear, you know, what Katie Kirk prophesied about them because she is now the oracle, you know, of Delphi uh, for 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 TV media. Okay, so no, did we do a good update on, on, on CNN there? Very good update. Top okay, we got, we got anything else? We got anything else to update? No? Okay, Not have a great end. weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll be back on Monday for A. Christina Noah and John Pavaritz. Keep the candle burning.